the question of how to pray really seems kind of trivial to me at first, as I mentioned. Because we usually think about it in terms of, well, how? Well, I just talk to God. Or, you know, is it, is it really much more complicated than that? I mean, we think about prayer, as I mentioned, in terms of language or posture or place. So what do I say? What do I not say? You know, how do I appropriately in reverence kind of put myself, you know, I was taught growing up that we get on our knees beside our bed or we fold our hands to focus or, or whatever. I mean, we talk about it in terms of posture. Is there a correct way in the how to pray? Or finally, you know, is, is there the right place to pray? What does the Bible say? I mean, should we pray in, only in church or in our homes or everywhere? What does that look like? And those, those are important questions on some level. But the reality is, is that I think in Scripture, those things are, are, are sort of shrunk down. And there's actually a bigger question at play when it comes to how to pray. And it really circulates around motive and about heartbeat. And some of these things we explored this summer when we talked about the Sermon on the Mount and Jesus' explanation of prayer out of the book of Matthew chapter 6. And we're going to take that a little bit different turn this morning because Jesus actually begins his teaching on prayer out of Matthew 6 with how not to pray which I find really fascinating. He doesn't just say, this is what you should do. He actually begins with, don't do this. And he uses an example of the culture around him. So if you've got your Bible, go ahead and flip to uh, Matthew chapter 6, right in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. Let's take a look at it together. So if you've got one right there. Let's look at uh, verses 5 through 8 together. So Jesus is teaching, and the Sermon on the Mount, as you may remember, is this discourse, this conversation that started with the disciples. He started by sitting down with the disciples, the 12 of these guys, and instructing them, and then a crowd gathered. And the crowd got to be huge, and so Jesus was teaching or preaching this sermon. It was really more of a talking than a sermon as you might, uh, we might think about in terms of church. But nonetheless, we call it the Sermon on the Mount. And in the middle of this, he talks about murder and divorce and fasting and, and all kinds of things. But he gets to this idea of prayer, and he says this, And when you pray, verse 5, Do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on street corners to be seen by men. I tell you the truth, they've received the reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen, then your Father, who is unseen, sees what is done in secret and will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like the pagans, for they think that they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them. For your Father knows what you need before you ask. So Jesus' instructions on prayer, or the how-to, really begin with how not to. And they really circle around two things. They circle around Motive and about heartbeat or authenticity. And he starts off in verse 5 by saying, When you pray, don't be like the hypocrites because they stand on the street corners and in the synagogues and they pray to be seen by men. The religious class of leaders at the time, they lived a life that was very visible. Everything they did was really for the show of the people around them. They wore colorful robes. They did things as an expression to show how pious or how religious they were. They even gave their offering that way. They wanted you to see the outward expression of their religious life. And so Jesus says, when you pray, and he's talking to this group of 12 in a surrounding kind of larger crowd, he says, don't be like the hypocrites, those religious elite who stand on the street corners and say things really loud as to be heard by men. 
So prayer begins by having this motive that says, this is not for the world around me. Now, I know you're sitting out here saying, Trev, that's really not a problem for me because anytime anybody asks people to pray in public, I will never raise my hand. I'm petrified of that. Most of us, that's one of the most anxiety-producing things ever. Even like worse than like public speaking would be, hey, would you pray for us? You know, we get really anxious about that. But I mean, if you really think about it, our, our spiritual lives is, is really hard to make that leap that they're sometimes for the people around us. I mean, our entire culture is driven by recognition. We live in such a way as to get recognized. I mean, we do it in our homes. When we do nice things for our spouses, what do we want them to see? We want them to see what we did. You know, I've used this example before that when I wash Meredith's car, I want her to know that I washed it. And if she goes three days without noticing, I have to tell her. Because I need her to praise me because I'm great. Because I need you to know that it happened. You know, if I go around and, and then she's taking the kids to school and make all the beds, I, I need to make sure she knows that I made all the beds. Why? Because I'm worthless. And I need her to know or I need myself to know that I'm worth something because I want the recognition. It happens in our work life too, doesn't it? I mean, you can't complete this project and then let that other guy get the credit for it. I mean, if you want the promotion and want your bosses to pat you on the back, you have to be recognized. You need that recognition. Our whole culture is set up this way. Is it really hard to, to think that maybe that's crossed over into our spiritual lives? That just maybe a lot of our spiritual lives are about show? That we walk into our churches and we wear our masks and we put on our performances so that people around us will actually think that we have it together and that we're not falling apart? I mean, is it really that far of a leap to think that sometimes our religious life is a performance for people? That we dress up really great on the outside to hide what is a mess on the inside? Man, prayer life isn't all that far. I mean, these guys would stand on the street corner and they would praise God at the top of their lungs praying so that people would walk by and go, one day I want to be like that. We all know people like that in our churches that we so aspire to be. But really the question about prayer begins, the how-to question begins with motivation. Well, what's Jesus' answer? His answer is, but you, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father in secret. Well, why does Jesus say that? Does it mean we're not allowed to pray outside of our rooms? No, but what it is is it's about motivation. What motivates you? In your religious life is your motivation to seek the acceptance of God alone, to live for an audience that is one, or is our motivation driven by the people around us? Do we find ourselves going to church or Sunday school or wherever, Bible study, because of what people will say when they don't see us? Or do we find ourselves going because we want to have an encounter with God? Sadly enough, I think a lot of us show up in church in places because we don't want to displease other people. We don't want to have to answer the where were you questions or the hey, we missed you questions. Instead of saying, God, this is for you and about you. The second sort of how to not pray response comes out of uh, verse 7. It says, and when you do pray... Do not keep on babbling like the pagans, for they think that they will be heard because of their many words. I really like that verse because it's, it paints a really interesting picture in my, in my mind. 
I mean, most of us would say we don't babble on when we pray and just say a lot of things, but I do think that this is really about being authentic. It's about not playing games with God. And, and the truth is, if we're really honest, we all play games with God when we pray. And they come in a couple of categories. They come in the what we say category, and they come in the what we don't say category. And the what we say category is really that part of our prayer time that tries to make us sound a lot better than we really are. And we do it all the time, or at least I do. Maybe you don't. But we try and let God know that we've been working really hard. We set ourselves up as saying, you know, God, here's the thing, is that, you know, it's been tough at home, and I've been working two jobs, and the kids have been kind of crazy, and so, you know, that's why I, I X, Y, and Z. Or some of us kind of set it up by making sure we hit all the, the trigger phrases, or, or we sound really great, and we say, you know, Lord of the harvest and the babbling brooks with the dew drops on the clovers. Gracious are we, thou heavenly host. Well, you know, and we set up this language, it just says, is that really me? I mean, a lot of us just need to show before God and go, God, I am worthless and I have no idea what to say, but I need you. See, the pagans would babble to God, hoping that by the way they articulated their phrases and the words that they used, somehow one of these gods that the pagans believed in might hear them. And sometimes we feel the same way. If I just get it all out there, maybe I'll hit something that God will hear. It's a game. I mean, God calls us to authenticity. The second really is in the what we don't say category. And this really is about the fact that I think very few of us really practice full disclosure with God. We don't really tell God everything. In fact, and really the reason for this is because when we say it or even whisper it or even allow ourselves to think things, it becomes very real. And so if I can compartmentalize the fears and struggle and sin in my life and not have to audibly say them, then somehow they don't really exist. As if God doesn't quite see them, even though in our hearts we know he knows. And so we tend to, to downplay a lot of those things. And so, you know, when we pray, we don't really put ourselves out there before the Lord. We sort of hedge our lives by sharing with God our good intentions. God, I meant, really meant, well, I didn't mean to. I mean, God knows you, you didn't mean to, but he knows you did. I think it's really interesting, because the reason for all this is summed up in verse 8. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you even ask. So God knows. I mean, this is this sort of quintessential idea of an all-knowing God. God knows God knows what you did last night. God knows what you did when you were 17 and you've tried to forget. God knows every little thing. The Bible tells us that God knows every single hair on your head and knows their number. God knows. Prayer begins with a motive that says, God, I want to meet with you. And with an authenticity that says, I'm just going to be real. And sometimes prayer is, is a very real, vivid expression of all that I don't know. See, Jesus begins the conversation on how to pray with how not to pray. And then in the second part of this passage, he works through the Lord's Prayer, which we kind of worked through this summer, and so I thought we'd take a little bit different turn. Because if God really does know, 
mean, if we really believe that the God of the universe knows everything about me, he knows my life, he knows what I've done, what I will do, he knows the things that I've never told a soul, the things that I'm petrified about, the things that I've forgotten, then why do we pray? I mean, our prayer life is not to inform God. A lot of times we use it that way. God, I don't know if you know this, but the lady that I work with, her son is really struggling with. God's like, oh yeah, I heard that. I mean, I know that, I'm God. I mean, God knows. But we, we use our prayer life as information source for God. And, but, but I mean, if God really does know, then why do we pray? I mean, what's the point? And this is what came out of this conversation I was having with this friend. We started talking about what prayer is, this communication, how we pray, is there a formula or, or whatever. And then we got to the why. I mean, if God really knows, why? I mean, God doesn't need me. It's not like he was busy working in Bangladesh and I let him know that, that we're kind of struggling with finances. And God was like, good. I, had, I hadn't realized that. Thank you, I've been busy feeding children. God doesn't need me to inform him. So why do we pray? Well, I really think that God calls us to prayer. And there's a lot of answers for this question. But I really think that there's three really profound things that I see in Scripture that God calls us to when we pray. The reason that God calls us to this intimate form of communication and worship with him. The first is this, that prayer reveals what we truly believe about God. And it really all circles around this word called trust. Prayer reveals what we truly believe about God. I mean, what do you really believe about God? Do you really believe that God can take care of your life? That God has the power to move and do the immeasurable, the things that you couldn't imagine or understand? Do you believe that God has the power to heal, to cleanse, to free you? What do you believe about God? Our prayer life reveals our true trust or lack thereof of God. I want to flip to Luke 11 for just a second. You don't have to go there if you don't want to, but if you've got it, you can. Jesus is teaching in the book of Luke on prayer. Very similar kind of contextual setup to what he's doing in Matthew. And he says this. He says, so I say to you, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened. For everyone who asks receives, seeks, finds, and him who knocks, the door will be opened. Everyone's kind of heard that passage probably. It's, it's attached to Jesus' teaching on prayer, interestingly enough. But listen to this, verse 11. Which of you fathers... If your son asks for a fish, we'll give him a snake instead. Or if he asks for an egg, we'll give him a scorpion. If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? I'm a dad. Not a great one, but I'm a dad. And I know this, that when my children come to me and they say, Dad, I'm hungry. I want to feed them. I give them food. They don't come to me and say, Dad, we're starving. And I say, great, go eat some dirt. We got plenty of it. Jesus says that when your son comes to you, your child comes to you, and they ask you for food, they ask you for an egg, who gives them a scorpion? When they ask you for fish, you don't give them a snake. But you who are evil, meaning we are sinful. Treb Prater is an absolute sinful mess. Yet I know how to give the gift that my son is asking for, food. 
to him, the good gift. Jesus says, how much more will your Father, creator and sustainer of the universe, give to you when you seek him? Do we really believe that, and trust that God is big enough to answer our prayers? That when we go before the Lord and we say, God, I am in desperate need of this, that God will really meet us there? Do we believe in a God that is powerful enough to take care of our lives, to answer our prayer and meet our needs? See, I believe God calls us to pray because it reveals our trust or lack thereof on Him. And I can tell you, there's been many times in my life where I've gone before the Lord and I've just said, I have got no idea what to do and I am petrified. But God, help me trust you. And right now I'm having a hard time. Prayer is where we truly come face to face with what we believe about God. Do you believe that God is big enough to meet not only your needs, but to answer your heart? The second thing I see that that prayer, really why God calls us to pray, is that prayer is where we surrender our will to the will of God. Prayer is where we surrender our will to the will of God. Now think about this for a minute. You remember at the end of Jesus' life, he had just, right before he goes to be crucified, he had just spent time in the upper room with the disciples. They've broken bread. He's washed their feet. Judas has left to betray him. They sing a hymn, and he takes the 11 left, the disciples that are remaining, the 11 remaining disciples, and they go out to the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus knows in a few short hours there's going to be a group of men that come and arrest him and take him off. He knows that he's going to be crucified and murdered. He invites a few of his close followers and his group of disciples to come and pray with him in the middle of the night. They go off. It says after they walk for a little while, Jesus falls to his knees and he begins to pray. And he says this. He says, Father, if there is any way that you can take this cup from me, then please. Meaning, Father, if there is any way that there is another option than what is getting ready to unfold. Because in the humanity of Christ, he knew he was going to the cross to be beaten, betrayed, and crucified. Father, if there is any way that you can take this from me, then please. But, if it's your will, then your will be done. That passage says that Jesus did that three times. He left and went back, woke his other disciples up, came back, fell on his knees before God, went back, woke the disciples up and said, why are you sleeping? Pray with me. Went back, fell on his knees and pleaded with God a third time. Prayer is where we come face to face with the fact that our wills are called to be in surrender to God's will. A lot of times we treat our prayer life as if we're trying to convince God of our really great plans. Like we're a 12-year-old trying to convince mom and dad that we're responsible enough for a puppy. You know, we work out our formula, we act like an adult, we tell them we're going to walk it and care for it. and We do that a lot with the Lord. We say, God, I want to be a part of this, or I think I should do this, and we lay out our plans before God, 
but prayers where we come face to face with God's will, where we say, God, all of my deepest desires, I want to be in submission to yours. I mean, this is what Jesus did. He said, God, if you could save me from this, then do that. But if not, your will. Maybe some of us have been there. Maybe we have pleaded with God over someone that we have cared for and loved for that is sick. Or maybe we have pleaded with God over, search, over someone's life or over a circumstantial situation saying, God, please. And we've come to the place where we just said, but I want what you want. And show me how to trust you. Prayer is where our wills surrender to the will of God, not where we convince God of how great our plans are. And finally, the third reason I think that God calls us to pray is because prayer is where we get involved in this deep, rich, intense relationship with God. I mean, imagine your greatest human relationship, that intimate relationship. Maybe it's a husband or wife, maybe it's a friend, maybe it's a parent, maybe it's a a whatever, but that intense human relationship where you share joys and triumphs, hurts, concerns, fears, where you cry and laugh, where you share that part of life where there are no secrets. I mean, do you know that the God of the universe desires that relationship with you and I? That intimacy, that triumphs and joys and fears and failures. Prayer is where we come face to face with a God who wants a deep, rich, intimate relationship with us. And that relationship is not just based on needs. A lot of times our prayer lives are driven by our needs. God, I need this. God, I need that. God, help me with this. God, help that person with this. We come to God as if it's some kind of vending machine of needs for our life. But Philippians 6 actually puts it this way. Philippians chapter 4, verse 6, excuse me, says this. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer, petition, with thanksgiving, present your life and your requests to God. Prayer is not just about saying, God, this is what I desperately have to have. Prayer is about saying, God, this was the greatest day of my life. Or, God, I'm, I'm so joyful. Or, God, I am so afraid. Or, God, I am so grateful. See, if our relationship with the Father is about intimacy and depth, then it's about sharing all facets of our life with Him. But sadly, for a lot of us, prayer is that last resort, like we talked about at first. It's just sort of that, my last desperate attempt, because this thing seems out of my control. But God wants this intimate relationship with us all the time. See, prayer is where we expose what we truly believe about God, where our will surrenders to where His will is, and where we can celebrate and have deep, intimate life with the Father. Now, there is a caveat here. I've got to have you understand. This intimate relationship with the Father only comes through Jesus Christ. We do not have access to holy, mighty God apart from Jesus Christ. So just praying to God without a relationship with Christ does not give us intimacy. 
The Bible tells us that the only way to the Father is through the Son. That we have to surrender our lives to Jesus Christ, which gives us access to holy, mighty God. The question really is, what is prayer to you? I mean, what has it become in your life, maybe? Is it the central place of life, of relationship and community with the Father? Deep, intense trust and expression? Or is it a ritual, a, a desperate attempt, or a vending machine type of approach? This morning we're going to have the opportunity to celebrate this amazing, redeeming love of God through communion. And part of preparing our hearts and our minds and our bodies for celebrating with God is about turning over and releasing our own nature to God's nature. So I'm going to invite you before we step that direction to just ask God to move in your heart and prepare you for this form of worship. Take a look at this video as we set our hearts up for the Lord. You know, this, um, this table really is an expression of God's absolute love for us. 
It's an expression of a father that would send his son to die, to give us life. It's a reminder of the fact that we have a God that is so desperately in love with us that he sent his son Jesus to die on a cross that we might have fellowship with him. This table is, is, is not a denominational table. It's actually open to all who profess trust in Jesus Christ. To all those who say, God, you love me and sent your son Jesus to give me life. To all those who have placed their faith and hope in Jesus. And you may remember this setting. On the night before Jesus was betrayed, he was sitting with his disciples in the upper room. He had just washed their feet and he was preparing them for his departure. This table reminds us of that night. It reminds us that we have a God who is intimately in love with us. Let's pray together. Holy God, we thank you for the opportunity to gather here today to celebrate this sacrifice of love together. God, we thank you that this table is a reminder of your desperate love for us. And that as we share it together, we are drawn to you and reminded of our absolute need for you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.